I am the bone of my microphone. Salt is my body, and analysis is my blood. I have created over a thousand shitposts. Unknown to death, nor known to life. Have withstood pain to create many recordings. Yet, those hands will never hold a five-star. So, as I pray... UNLIMITED BLADE JERKS! Welcome to the new episode of Unlimited Blade Jerks, everyone. Yeah. I'm, I'm here. Amanda's here. And guess who's here? It's Roy. What's up? Roy is our artist. <laughs> yeah. I did do the art. Artist of the show and first special guest of the show. Yay. Yeah. Welcome. Special. King, king of king of guests. That's me. The once and future guest. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yes. How did you like watching Fate for the first time? You know what? I liked it. I've been enjoying. Yay! Fate has a lot going for it, yeah. but it also has a lot not going for it. It's a mixed bag. You know. It is medium. It's my favorite medium anime. I'm pretty sure that we've opened every episode of UBJ with us just being like, Fate sucks. Let's talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> this is fine. Let's cover it. Yeah. Today, we are talking about Season 1, Episode 6, and Episode 7 of Fate Zero. And there are a lot of trigger warnings for this one. Blood and guns, murder of children, tentacle-type monsters, close-ups of human internals, and while it's not for the episodes themselves, child sexual assault, just by virtue of our Who's That Heroic Spirit segment today. Bastard of the show. Yeah, he is the bastard of the show. That being said, episode six is called A Night of Schemes. It starts off with Irie and Saber driving the car. And Irie loves to drive the car. It's very good. It's really good. She's going very fast in her bad CGI car. I love that she calls it a toy as she's speeding along a fucking cliff. That shit freaks me out so bad, though. Like, the, the skinny little, like, mountain roads where they're, like, yeah, on the side of a I cliff. Oh, my God. The first time I went out to California to hang out with Fallon back when they were living there, they were, like, telling me about this highway that was, like, basically like that that their mom had to take to get to work. And Fallon was like, yeah, we can take that road. And I was like, no. No, I'd really rather not. I'll just, I'll yeah. just, I'll just walk. Mood. That shit. Mm-mm. No, not for Roy. And then Saber stops the car. I don't remember if she like tells Irie to stop or like physically moves her foot over the dashboard. She like grabs the wheel and Irie slams the brakes. It's a team effort. Yeah. Okay. So then they see Caster standing in the middle of the road being menacing and the theme song plays. Yeah, he says, go, 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 go. He's here to do insurance fraud. <laughs> Get hit by <laughs> The next note that I have after the theme song is that the car is a DeLorean. I think it's actually a Mercedes, but well, like... open the same way as the DeLorean from Back to the, the Future. Style. So go with me for a second. What if Irie was Marty McFly? Hmm. What if Irie had like a little Marty McFly outfit on? I would think I would like it. Doc Saber. Yeah, Doc Saber! <laughs> so they get out of the car and they approach Caster really hesitantly. And then he starts calling Saber his holy virgin. Normal thing to call somebody. Yeah, very normal. And Saber doesn't know him. So then Castor starts freaking out. Castor reveals that his name is Gilles de Ray, And he calls Saber John. She doesn't know who that is. 
And she tells Castor who she is. Due to chivalry. And then Castor thinks she's lost her memory and he freaks out. Because of that evil god. Yeah. So Saber fucking tells him he's posting cringe. (laughs) (laughs) And then he says that the Holy Grail War has ended and the Grail chose him because he wished for Joan of Arc to be reborn. And she immediately just pulls out her sword. Get the ban hammer ready. Yeah, she says muted blocked. (laughs) He thinks God has cursed her and he swears to free her and then disappears. Yeah, he turns into glitter. Yeah, he does. (laughs) We love it. It's only acceptable to me when Gilgamesh does that. Everybody else, I don't really notice. But when Gilgamesh disappears into glitter, I'm like, oh, he just did it. He's allowed to. He's Gilgamesh. It's part of his charm. I hate (laughs) saying that he has charm, but he has so much charm. It's gold glitter. It's perfect. Charm point dissolves into glitter. Yeah, you know. (laughs) So Irie says that it's difficult to deal with someone who ignores everything you're saying. Then Saber says she can't fight him without her hand being okay. And then Assassin shows up and they're following them with two forms. And then we see Rinosuke, and he's just murdering someone again, like normal. And Castor gets mad and stabs the body. He starts yelling that John has gone mad. He has to do more depraved actions to get God to notice him. And Rinosuke says, so quantity over quality. And he thinks this is a waste. They were being kind to us, like the directors. Because reading the light novel, the quality of their, quote, art is, uh, sure something. I hate that! Ryanosuke does tell Castor that he's cooler than God. Thank you, Fotable, for not making us look at that. Yeah, I would hate to see it personally. And the next scene, Elmoloy is watching TV. In his big cool apartment or something? Or I guess it's a hotel room. Uh, it's a hotel room, right? It's the penthouse of the Hyatt. So he scolds Lancer as he's watching TV for not killing Saber and wasting a command seal. And Lancer says that he will bring him Saber's head. Almaloy screams at him. And then Alao shows up and says that he is pathetic for hiding in the shadows. And she explains that she is Lancer's additional master and supplies him mana. And that Elmoloy controls the command seals. Can you explain how this works? What is up with that? I mean, basically, they're cheating the system. Highly skilled mages can alter the summoning ritual to modify their contract with a servant, but it's really not what was intended. Uh, We don't see any other examples of modified contracts in fate titles that I can remember. But yeah, in this case, they both function as masters. Kadith holds the command seals. Salau provides Lancer with mana. And they are capable of changing roles if needed. Interesting. Okay. Oh, we also, we didn't even say, Salau is Kaneth's fiance. Oh, okay. I was wondering. Did they not even say that in the episode? No, she just like shows up. Yeah, she just gets mad at him. And then Lancer tells her to not do that. Yeah, and then she looks at Lancer's handsomeness mole and uh, Kaneth gets mad because she wants to cuck him. That's why <laughs> he's mad. She really doesn't like him, but he is constantly trying to win her affections that good i don't know on the one hand it actually shows us a more soft side of kanith on the other hand it's still kanith we don't like him so then the fire alarm goes off 
And El Malloy says this is arson and tells Lancer to defeat Saber, who is probably here to lift the curse. So I'm guessing that means that they think that Saber committed arson? It's probably that they think Saber's master committed arson in an attempt to draw them out. Oh, okay. But this scene really illustrates the whole mage killer element of Kirisugu's character. There is that like zoom out scene of Kanith describing all of the spirits and the traps that he has set up all around the penthouse level. And it's a fortress. No one would ever be able to get in. And then a fucking bomb goes off. In his 90s Microsoft maze screensaver. Right? (laughs) After the building explodes, Kiritsugu calls Maya. And she says that Elmoloi was in the building. Kiritsugu tells Maya to withdraw. And then Kirei shows up. And he's like amazed at Kiritsugu. He's like, what is this man? You know, his normal stuff. And Maya reveals herself to him. And he asks her where Kiritsugu is. And then throws a dead bat at her. Why does this happen? Remember at the end of last episode, in, I think it was in the church, Assassin says that they found a familiar outside and they hand Kirei the dead bat. That's Maya's familiar, and this is basically oh. Kirei's hissy fit because he ran into Maya, not Kiritsugu. So then Kirei pulls out his Wolverine claws. <laughs> they're called black keys. Oh, they're called Wolverine claws. They're absolutely called Wolverine claws. They're called that thing where you take a bunch of pens and pencils when you're in class and you're bored and you <laughs> stick them between your fingies and you go, I'm Wolverine. I'm not going to disagree with this. But for the sake of the podcast, being, like, vaguely educational, (laughs) they're called Black Keys, and they are the signature weapon of executioners of the church. Wow. Then he sets off a gas bomb and Maya hides. It's Kiritsugu who throws the gas bomb so that Maya can't- she doesn't just hide. That's the only reason that Maya gets out of that alive. And then Assassin shows up and says that they found Castor. Kire tells Tokiomi what Castor and Rinosuke are doing with their victims. And Tokiomi wonders why they are in the Grail War. Father Rise says they are breaking the rules of magic and the Holy Grail War. Which I guess is true. There is definitely an enforced rule in the Mages Association. Basically, don't let regular people know that magic is real. As soon as you start involving the general populace, that's when the church starts sending in executioners and the Mages Association sends in their own people. Yeah, it's bad. Kire says that he can't send assassin. So then Father Rise says that the new rule, because you can make new rules now, is all servants have to work together to defeat Castor. Well, that's why he's the overseer, because he has to be able to say, hey, what's happening right now is fucked up. We're going to put a temporary moratorium on the fighting. He's the dungeon master. Pretty much. So then it's Gilgamesh, and he's in his pajamas and drinking vibing. wine. He is vibing. And he is vibing. <laughs> I think it's just funny that the relic that summoned him was supposedly a fossil of the first skin shed by a snake. And he's wearing snakeskin pants. That's interesting. I don't think that's necessarily for anything other than like an aesthetic move, but it's still kind of a cool choice. I love that. He's like lounging in his jammies and drinking some wine. 
And he says that this room has better wine than Tokiomi's office. Can we talk about how he's pretty much opened every fucking bottle of wine and there's a million wine glasses and it looks like he maybe took a sip of each one until he found his favorite and then just left the mess? Real king shit. Only kings will understand. Little king problems when you don't get your favorite wine. (laughs) (laughs) Kira asks him what he's doing and if he's unhappy with Tokiomi. And Gilgamesh says that Tokiomi lets him stay there but that he's boring as hell. Then they start talking about the vortex of the root, that Tokiomi wants to reach the vortex of the root. I was reading the Type Moon Wiki, and of course, um, I was trying to understand this, and my brain fell out of my head again. So Amanda, can you explain this, please? So the vortex of the root, or just the root, is, in my opinion, more understandable by its other name, the Akashic Records, just because that is an actual real-life concept. Akasha originated as a Sanskrit word used in Indian cosmology. The exact meaning differs between religions, but it always revolves around metaphysical concepts. The term Akasha was adopted by Theosophy in the mid-1800s, and then the concept transformed into the modern definition of Akashic Records, which is also called the root in Nasuverse. The root is a metaphysical place where all souls originate from and return to upon death, It's where all human knowledge and experience, past, present, future, and across all parallel worlds, is collected. It's the truth of everything, and needless to say, it contains knowledge of true magic, which is why a lot of magi seek it. So, Tosaka is trying to figure out the meaning of life, basically. More or less. A man after my own heart! How life work? How magic do? How is magic formed? Oh, girl, get magic. Magic? How the fuck does that work? (laughs) Jure says that the path to the root is the path to escaping the world, and that non-mages and scouts wouldn't understand. <clears throat> You've been called a muggle. He says normies don't get it. Kira <laughs> says that the grail can't necessarily seek the root, and the grail can alter reality. Then he says that other masters want to seek power and status in reality, and that Gilgamesh wants the same thing. Then Gilgamesh says, Kiri, what do you want from the Holy Grail War? And Kiri says, I don't want anything. He doesn't know why the Grail chose him. And Gilgamesh says, to wish for joy. And Kiri says, that's blasphemous. Yeah, his, he goes on this thing about Catholic guilt. He's like, yeah. I have depression and I'm Catholic. Sorry. Legit. Um, last episode, I said, Kiri needs to go get a therapist. Now I beg someone to get Kiri a therapist. For real. Yeah. Gilgamesh wonders why joy is a sin, and Kire says he has no joy. Gilgamesh says that joy is a form of the soul, and that Kire doesn't know what his soul is, and Kire is offended. Gilgamesh says that Kire should join him in his entertainment, and says that he should figure out their plans and motivation, and tell it to Gilgamesh. Does it will entertain me. It's reality television for Gilgamesh. It's literally just like, I'm going to get the grail in the end, so I'm just going to watch. Kira says, okay. What else does Kira fucking have to do at this point? Yeah. (laughs) So Gilgamesh says that he's going to get more wine, and then he disappears into sparkles again. We love it. And we do love it. Kiri says that if he can learn more about Kiritsugu, maybe he can get closer to what he wants from the grail. So that's the end of that episode. So then it's episode seven, and this one is called Dark Forest. 
people are investigating the rubble of the hotel and there's a big mercury ball. You, when you stick your hands in it, you see blood cells rushing through veins, which I hate. Then the man that stuck his head in the ball is muttering that he needs to get this out of here. And his partner is confused. So then he tells them to load the mercury ball in the truck. And inexplicably, that's all we get of that because the theme song happens. As we find out later in the episode, the mercury ball belongs to Kaneth. It is a mystic code called Volumen Hydrogerum. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's the best you're going to get out of me. I'm calling it VH from here on because I can't pronounce shit. So anyway, briefly, a mystic code is basically any sort of magical item. Simpler ones may be able to augment magecraft or perform a specific function when provided with mana. But there are also highly complex and powerful mystic codes, and VH is one of them. Kaneth is able to shape it at will so it can perform in a number of ways. And here it was able to protect Kaneth and Salau from the fall from the Hyatt penthouse. And it appears that when the rescue worker touches it, it allowed Kaneth to take control of him. The blood thing was really just an illustration of that. In the light novel, the scene finishes with the guy who touched it. He steals the truck that they load VH onto and drives off. And police later find him unconscious inside the truck but VH is nowhere to be found. So then my next question is, does the light novel explain how they get it onto the truck? Nope. Right! <laughs> so then after the theme song, Rise is speaking to everyone through familiars and says that all masters have to kill Caster and whoever does will get an extra command seal. And then Tokiomi says that El Molloy is still alive because his familiar was at the church. And Rise says that this will draw El Molloy out. Specifically, it will draw Kaneth out because he already wasted a command seal. So the oh. promise of the restoration of that command seal is what Rise is figuring will bring Kaneth back out from hiding but says that Gilgamesh must kill Castor. So then, the next scene... Which is the best scene in both of these episodes. This scene is amazing! So there's a delivery man at Waver's door, and Ryder <laughs> answers the door, and the delivery man says, Might there be a Mr. Iskandar, King of Conquerors, here? Because <laughs> we don't see him, like, answer the door. We just see, like, the delivery guy looking up and, like, cowering. We find out that Ryder ordered a t-shirt! Yay! It's not just a t-shirt. He ordered a video game about World Conquest, and the t-shirt, as far as I'm aware, was, like, the equivalent of a pre-order bonus. I'm surprised that the shirt even fits him. But then again, I mean, it's, like, bulging, so... <laughs> Can we talk about the shirt itself? It's got, like, a projection of, like, the map of the world, and it says the word admirable on it. Oh, yeah! God, the full name of it is Admirable Great Tactics, so there you go. <laughs> so Waver is yelling at Ryder because he's not supposed to be seen by other people. But Ryder says if he and the grandparents aren't home, who's supposed to answer the door? Waver says that he had to leave to go to the church. And also, why are you ordering things via mail order? Yeah! 
even think, when does this take place again? Like early 2000s? It's 1994. Well, Bill Clinton's president. Oh yeah, Bill Clinton is president. So Amazon doesn't even exist yet. Nope. We had to order this from a catalog. Ryder says that if he wears modern attire, then it's okay to leave the domicile. And Waver tells him to wear some pants. <laughs> Is he just wearing his armor? He's wearing the shorts that he wears under his armor, but they're basically boxers. Yeah, they're like boxer briefs. Although I'm pretty sure in the light novel, he's completely bottomless at this time. Oh! Good. So then Ryder says, oh, leggings, and asks if he has to wear pants. You have to wear pants. And Waver says that he will not go into town just to buy him triple XL pants. And Ryder says this will hinder him in conquering the world. This is so fucking funny. If I can't leave the house, how am I supposed to conquer the world, Waver? Ryder would do very badly in quarantine. (laughs) So then Waver says that if he defeats another servant, he will buy him pants. And Ryder makes him swear to do it. Next scene is Kiritsugu and Irisville and Saber looking at a map. Kiritsugu says that there are four points that the Grail may appear on. Most people will go after Castor, but their advantage is that Castor thinks that Saber is Joan of Arc. Saber thinks that he is doing evil things and they should go right to him. Ari says that the curse is a huge problem because her wound won't heal. And then Kiritsugu, he says that he will kill others while they're hunting Castor. And Saber gets mad and says that he's insulting heroic spirits because he won't allow her to go out and fight. And Kiritsugu says that he doesn't trust Father Rise because he thinks he is working with Kirei and Tokiomi. It's specifically because Rise is harboring Kirei. Because if Kirei is literally like no command seals out of the war, he can't rejoin. So why is he still hiding? <sighs> then Ari and Kiritsugu are alone. This scene is so stressful. This just rends me every time. Yeah, I knew it would rip your heart out. Kiritsugu says, if he ran away, would Iri follow? And she says, what about Ilya? And Kiritsugu says that he would go back for Ilya. And kill anyone in his way. Then Iri says that that's a lie, and he would never give up the Holy Grail, and that he would probably kill himself if he did. Kiritsugu says that Kirei is coming after him. Harry says that she and Saber will protect him, and also Maya is here. Regardless of whether she does or does not know about the affair, I don't think she knows, but regardless, she recognizes that there is a part of Kiritsugu that only Maya understands and that she never will. And that causes her some anxiety. You know, this is the first time Iris feels been out in the world, but Kiritsugu and Maya have been working together for a long time out in the battlefield. They have that kind of camaraderie. So it's different. And she doesn't know what to do with that. Ah. Mm-hmm. So after that happens, Iris Field gets a brain blast. Someone tripped her magic alarm wires. Oh. Yeah. She got a brain blast. Yeah. <laughs> Kiritsugu says that there's an attack and to get a crystal ball. Kiritsuguga and Maya get their guns ready, and Saber and Irisville say that Castor is trying to get them to come out of their house 
he looks straight into the camera, as it were, and is like, Hi, Jean! Yikes. <laughs> it's like, okay, he knows we're watching him. Fantastic. And that he has hostages of children. Caster tells the kids to play hide and seek and then murders a child. And Irie commands Saber to go out and defeat Caster. Because Kirisugu can't give that order, but she can see yeah. it on his face, so mm-hmm. Iris Veal does. So she goes out into the woods, Saber. Caster shows up with a child hostage and taunts her. And the kid runs towards Saber, and she tells him to run toward the castle, and then a monster explodes from the child and grabs hold of Saber. It's very alien. Yeah, it's like a chestburster. It's a secret Cthulhu. Yeah! You're completely not wrong, and we (laughs) will delve into that later. Oh yeah, no, I remember him saying Cthulhu when he first Uh showed up. So he, he he says he coaxed Saber into a snafu, and she has to fight a bunch of Bloodborne enemies. Yeah. Ari says that Saber can win if she keeps fighting until Caster's mana runs out. Kiritsugu tells Maya to take Ari and leave, and then she gets another brain blast because another servant shows up. Saber says that Caster's book is his noble phantasm, which allows him to command a demonic legion. Caster demands that she is Jean and screams that she will not remember. Saber is attacked by the monster, but then Lancer shows up. And Lancer and Saber decide to fight together, and Caster says that Saber is his. Lancer taunts him and says that he will never let him defeat Saber. That's kind of like where that ends. So then Almaloy is doing some chemistry and explodes the door of the Einsburn hideout with his mercury ball. That's just where he keeps VH in the little test tube, and that's what he's pouring out. Gotcha. He rolls into this hole that he's blasted into the side of the building with the VH looking like BB-8 next to him. It's true. (laughs) And he says, Einsburn Master, come to Hole and Wall in next 15 minutes if you want an ass kicking. (laughs) Uh And they set traps in the lobby of the castle. And Kiritsugu finds some like drippies of the mercury. Then Almaloy shows up and they start fighting. Kiritsugu does a speed spell, and he uses his body as a reality marble. So what's a reality marble? Okay, in the simplest of explanations, a reality marble is a high-level bounded field magecraft, nearing the level of true magic, honestly, uh, where the mage essentially creates a pocket dimension by projecting their inner self outward. The more exact explanation is that the world and the self switch places according to the world egg theory, but I'm not even going to pretend that I understand that, like, at all. So hopefully the simpler explanation suffices. Yeah, because when when you said the world and the self switch places, uh, my brain fell out of my ear. Yep, that's how I feel about it too. You could have stopped right before the sentence about whatever switching places and just said, it's a stand. Yeah, it's pretty much a stand. Kiritsugu definitely just uses, he just uses the world to get away. Reality marbles are generally not used in the way that Kiritsugu uses them. Reality marbles are extraordinarily hard to create and maintain due to both mana consumption and the fact that the world doesn't like anomalies like that. So it corrects them as quickly as possible. Okay. Kiritsugu is able to create bounded fields comparable to a reality marble in which time flows differently. 
when said bounded field is applied to just his own body, it becomes an unexpectedly useful skill in combat. It's also far easier to activate and maintain than a full-blown reality marble. The main issue is that when he releases the bounded field, the world's corrections create a huge burden on his body, and this means that it's not something he can do for more than a few seconds at a time, but luckily, that's usually all he needs to kind of bridge the gap between where he is and what he needs to do. Okay. Gotcha. So Kuritsugu is running away. He lowers his heart rate and breathing so Elmoloy's drippies can't find him. Elmoloy finds him and he starts shooting at Elmoloy with a machine gun. Then he throws the machine gun away because that's what you do with a machine gun, I guess. Oh, yeah. And he pulls out the contender, which is his signature gun. And he points it and that's how it ends. That's a good ass name for a gun. (laughs) The contender. I could have been a contender. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, that's how the episode ends. There's a reason we brought Roy on. And <laughs> it's because two years ago, we were at NecoCon in Virginia. And I think we were sitting in a hallway, like outside maybe the artist alley. And Roy just starts just going on this rant about Gilles de Ray. And I was like, holy shit, that guy's in fate. Because that's the only reason I know about this guy. So that's going to lead us into our segment. For My the God. Day. Who's that heroic spirit? It's Gilles de Ray. So, Gilles de Ray, he was a buddy of Joan of Arc. He was in the French army at the time. He was a knight and a lord, and he was, he was buddies with her. He helped her out. He was raised by his grandpa, who was trying to be a real-life Game of Thrones man, like, trying to arrange all of this shit. And he tried to, like, arrange a marriage between Gilles de Ray, who at the time was 12, and another noble lady who was, uh, who was four. Her name is Beatrice de Rohan, niece to the Duke of Brittany. But he eventually did get married to somebody else, and they had, they had one kid. That's Catherine de Toars of Brittany. He did military shit. He helped out Joan of Arc. They were buddies. And after all of that happened, he got to, like, basically retire pretty young. So as, like, a rich, young, idle gentleman, he decided to, like, spend his money on a bunch of things that people thought were, like, dumb bullshit. He, like, commissioned a bunch of plays to be written and acted out, and they were, like, huge and extravagant. He built the Chapel of Holy Innocence. Mm -hmm and designed robes for himself to officiate mass in around 1435. At the time, he was also pretty broke, so he started selling his houses a whole bunch. So he could put on this lavish play called Le Mystère du Siege d'Orléans. This play consisted of more than 20,000 lines of verse, requiring 140 speaking parts and 500 extras. Half the total sales and mortgages of his houses were spent on the production of this play. It was first performed in Orléans, May 8th, 1435, and 600 costumes were constructed, worn once, discarded, and constructed afresh for subsequent performances. And unlimited supplies of food and drink were made available to spectators at Ray's expense. So that's his play. It's like he retired and just lost his shit entirely. He the army and decided to start producing Marvel movies, like all on oh his own God. dime. This pissed off the rest of his family because they were like, this dude is spending all of our money. This is ridiculous. We can't keep doing this. 
he had a younger brother. So when his grandpa died, he left all of his possessions to his younger brother. They appealed to the Pope to disavow him. This decree or whatever was passed down that said that he wasn't allowed to sell any more property because that's what he was doing to like bankroll all of his bullshit. He ended up in a lot of debt and he ran off. And then he started doing alchemy. As you do, when you, you know, you become broke and then you summon demon. The alchemy was because he was broke and he was trying to, like, restore his fortune, no? Probably. And then the demon things just kind of... You know, it just happens. Sometimes you and your teacher, whose name is Perlotti, they try to summon this demon named Baron, spelled like the the Trump child. Oh my god! (laughs) They try to summon this demon, and he never shows up, and Perlotti says that it's because they need to sacrifice kids. This is where things get very bad. Gilderoy allegedly starts doing murder between 1432 and 1433. So actually, yeah, before his big fun play... Oh, that was before his retirement, too. Yeah. I'm not going to get into the details of the extents of his crimes, but it was it was very, very bad. That's all anybody needs to know. It gets as bad as you can yeah. imagine, yeah. probably. The, all you need to know is that the victims were children, there were a lot of them, and it was very fucking bad. But eventually he 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 gets found out or something, or like, So this is kind of when it gets sort of iffy, because in 2020, the present, there's kind of two camps about Gilderay. And it's like, so some people think that, yes, because he he confessed, he was hanged and he was burnt. Supposedly, they, they ended up giving him like an actual Christian burial for some reason. Several years after Gilles' death, his daughter Marie had a stone memorial erected at the site of his execution. Over the years, the structure came to be regarded as a holy altar under the protection of St. Anne. Generations of pregnant women flocked there to pray for an abundance of breast milk. The memorial was destroyed by rioting Jacobins during the French Revolution in the late 18th century. So it sounds like some people believed in his innocence back then, too. Yeah, it's pretty wild. So, like I was saying, some people believe that, yes, he was guilty of all of this, and The other thing about his victims is that we don't know how many there were, or his alleged victims. Usually most people say it's going to be between 100 and 200, but some are saying it's like upwards of 600, which is, boy, is that a lot. Then on the other hand, you have people who are like, this is bullshit because he was a victim of the media. The media. He was... He was this this young rich dude who was just spending his money like however he wanted. The government and the church got mad at it and this was basically at the time of the Inquisition. So these people say that the only reason he confessed was due to this being the Inquisition and also like they were going to excommunicate him if he didn't. So it's like, what are you going to do? You either get disconnected from everybody and everything you've ever known or you die. So some people think he's innocent. Some people think he's guilty. We really don't know. In the 90s, I think, the, like, public and the judicial authorities in France did, like, a retrial. They acquitted him of the charges, but none of the people who participated in this were, like, historical experts or scholars or anything. So, who knows? Personally, if you want Roy's onion, it's probably somewhere in between. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if it was, he did some questionable shit. And it got blown way and, out yeah, of proportion. And people latched onto that because they were mad at him doing all of this shit and being Mr. Party Man and selling all of their land. Wouldn't be surprised if some people, if he did kill some people. I don't fucking know. I wasn't there in 1435. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's, that's the story of him. 
it is thought he was the inspiration for the French folktale Bluebeard, like we spoke about two episodes ago, about a wealthy man who murders his series of wives. And there are several movies about Joan of Arc's life that feature Gilles de Ray, including the 1948 film Joan of Arc starring Ingrid Bergman as Joan of Arc. And when I looked up cultural depictions of Gilles de Ray, uh, they linked to Castlevania and Blade. So I'm not sure what he has to do with either of those things, but I guess they, I guess he's in them. Oh, one other thing, just another fun fact. He was supposedly very handsome. So I guess this is a good bridge for us to get into the fate version of him. Here's a, another fun fact. Um, so he did have a daughter and, uh, you know, the family line continued, but they eventually changed the spelling of their name, oh, yeah, yeah to, to avoid the controversy. So they changed it from uh, uh, lowercase d-e space r-a-i-s to uh, capital d-e space r-e-e. -E. Uh, and then later it became d-u-r-e-e, -E, all one word. Um, and that was after some church stuff so just what's it they kind of can't kind of kind of not winning with the uh controversies the durays but <laughs> but yeah if you're if you're listening to this and your last name is duray congratulations I maybe guess. second to your lineage <laughs> sorry it had to be like this okay so Gilles de Ray was a baron of French nobility in the early 1400s described as honest courageous and a bit of a lady killer. He owned a ridiculous amount of wealth and land to the point where it could threaten the monarchy. However, he was more interested in purchasing artwork than pursuing a coup. He seems to have found this world to be corrupt and ugly. My personal read is that collecting art may have been an escape from that. His initial claim to fame were his military exploits leading the French army alongside Jeanne d'Arc during the Hundred Years' War. After the reclamation of Orléans, he was regarded as a national hero and awarded the prestigious military distinction Marshal of France. Jean quickly became a beacon of light for him, the only proof of God's existence on earth, and his single raison d'etre, as it were. So when the church branded Jean a heretic witch and burned her at the stake, Gilles went mad from despair, unable to understand how God would allow his most pure and devout servant to perish in such a way. Gilles squandered his fortune at an alarming speed, and in an attempt to recover his losses, he turned to alchemy under the tutelage of his friend, Francois Prelati. Prelati's involvement in black magic, however, twisted any virtue left within Gilles into an obsession with proving God's non-existence. He began committing truly awful atrocities, convinced that no divine judgment would punish him. Punishment only came years later when the government feared that Gilles might sell his land to enemy states. His heinous acts were simply the pretense for the hanging. So now let's talk some servant things. Gilles de Ray is summonable as a saber due to his famed military accomplishments, but lore-wise, that's not easy to do. Although he never learned to perform black magic on his own, Gilles' evil far overshadows other aspects of his life in the modern public consciousness. So as a servant, he would more or less default to the caster form that we see in Fate Zero. 
As a note, this is not reflected in Fate Grand Order mechanics, because both Saber and Caster Gilles are three stars, so they are equally likely to be summoned. Gilles' stats are as follows. Strength D, Endurance E, Agility D, Mana C, Luck E, and Noble Phantasm A+. His Noble Phantasm is Prelati's Spellbook, a grimoire bound in human skin, which contains knowledge of an evil god predating humanity, likely Cthulhu, judging by its associated incantations. The spellbook has a magic reactor, meaning it possesses its own mana independent of the user. This is why Gilles, who never became a proper mage in his own lifetime, is able to wield magecraft as a caster. The spellbook's main function is the summoning of, quote, horrors water demons from the seas of another dimension. Also why it's probably Cthulhu. Due to the seemingly limitless number of horrors it can summon, Prelati's spellbook is considered an anti-army noble phantasm. Gilles possesses the caster class skill territory creation at rank B, meaning he's able to create a magic workshop where his magecraft would gain a territory advantage, Notably, because he has Prelati's spellbook, the caster class skill item creation, he doesn't have that. There's really not a lot of detail about that specifically. His personal skills include appreciation of the arts at E- rank, which means that he has some knowledge of artist servants. So if the noble phantasm has something to do with their art, he might be able to determine their true name. He also has Mental Pollution at A rank. Uh, Not real sure what that is. Didn't find anything. But I imagine it has something to do with his insanity. And Evil Eye of the Abyss at C rank. This is a skill unique to Gilles as it relates to his demise. Essentially, he stared into the abyss and it stared back. So now that he's seen such horrors, he's able to cause similar fear in others. And that's about what I have for Fate Geal. Uh Amanda, do we have any Fate news for this week? So, full transparency, I haven't been paying very close attention because I've been moving. And if I'm sounding a little bit different, that's why, because I'm in a different recording space. And I record Fate news usually a little bit closer to the release date than the recording date because I want it to be more accurate. But that being said, the only thing I can think of that happened recently is that Fate Stay Night Heaven's Feel Spring Song is getting its US release through Fathom Events on November 18th, 20th, 21st, and 22nd. I believe they also announced Canadian dates, but I don't know those off the top of my head. And that's going to be preceded in the US at least, I'm not sure about Canada, by a double feature of Presage Flower and Lost Butterfly on November 14th that on principle and for myself because we're still in a pandemic and I can't go but that's a me problem and then this was a little while ago I think but we do have a date for Fate Grand Order Divine Realm of the Round Table Camelot Wandering Agaturum that's going to be released in Japan on December 5th and the US is supposed to get it sometime in 2021 that's about all I got, so let's move on to listener questions. Hey, listener questions! Okay, so I think Anne-Marie sent one in in our private Discord, so let's do that one first. Anne-Marie sent in, I have trouble understanding Tokiomi's wish to enter the route. 
It seems to be similar to reaching Nirvana, but that is usually a personal journey versus mage families dedicating centuries of research to allow one person a chance to attempt it. Here's the answer, hopefully. I can definitely see where there would be mental crossover between The Root and Nirvana. Even a notable theosophist, Henry Steele Olcott, compared them in his 1881 book, A Buddhist Catechism. Buddha taught two things are eternal, viz. Akasha and Nirvana. I personally see them as two sides of one coin, Akasha being the intellectual and Nirvana being the spiritual. That said, Tokiomi's goal isn't reaching Nirvana after death. Magi like Tokiomi seek to open a path to the root while they still live, assumedly to return to the physical plane with some knowledge of true magic. This is the case with the first and fifth magics, how they were rediscovered, as it were. However, those discoveries are the result of a mage only catching a glimpse of the root, because any who've touched it haven't returned. The reason for this isn't confirmed in or out of story, but speculations include the mage being sucked into the root as souls originate from and return to Akasha, so there could be a sort of magnetic pull, or that the mage, upon receiving knowledge of the truth that Akasha holds, could ascend to some level of godhood, and there really isn't a reason for them to go back. So hopefully that kind of designates a difference between Nirvana and the Root. Very interesting. So then our next question is for Kat. And Kat wants to know, who is the best servant and why is it Dear Moon? Kat, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to disagree with you on this one. It's Ryder. Yeah, it's Ryder. It's Iskandar. Kat, how about when you come on as our guest for Who is That Heroic Spirit? It's Dear Moot. You can argue that all you want. Yeah. Uh, because right now it's Ryder. I'm sorry. Ryder, unfortunately. Ryder. Fortunately, it's Ryder, actually. He's big and he's good. Sorry. Lancer is lovely, though. He is good. He is you great. You have to admit that he is lovely. He is good. He's very good. And he has a sexy mole. He's very sexy. He is handsome. Then Colin wrote in and they ask, uh, make Roy assign Modows as servant classes. And I think I actually did this when I came on podcasting is forbidden in the cloud recesses. You might have, but it was like, that was like a year ago. Yeah, that was a long time ago. And now I want you to do it. Okay, yeah, this is going to be fun because now I, now I know a little bit about what all of this mess is. Before anybody asks, uh, Modow is Modow Zushi. Yeah. I'm going to assign one character to each class. Wait, which is a caster? Lon Longy is a saber. He's Mr. Swordboy. He's very good at it. Neiming Joy is a berserker. We know this. Jiggy's an assassin. That's already canon. What about Song? Well, Song isn't a servant. He's Waver Velvet. Oh, it's true! I'm going to say Jong Cheng is a lancer, because I think a whip could count as a lancer type of weapon. It's a melee weapon, but it's kind of long range. Yeah, I'd say so. Jin Leon could be an archer. And then the last one, Weirushan on Little Apple is, is writer. Okay, I think that is everything. Right, where can we find you on the internet? I am on Twitter at SemperFunny, and I also do a Modao Zushi podcast with my fiancé Fallon, who just walked in, <laughs> called Podcasting is Forbidden in the Cloud Recesses. Uh, and that's on the Noisepace.xyz network of podcasts. Oh yeah, I'm also on Henry Kissinger's Pokemon Going to Die sometimes. You can find Scout at Cybernetics on Twitter, C-Y-B-E-R-N-E-T-I-Q-U-E-S. My internet is at Onion, O-H-N-I-O-H-N. 
And you can find UBJ at UBJCast on Twitter. And we also have an email, unlimitedbladejerks at gmail.com. Boy, can you say this for me? Wait, before we before we say that, thank you for joining us, Roy. It was really yeah, nice to have you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for oh, explaining yeah. the bad man of Shield Array. Like only Roy can. Yeah. <laughs> Roy, can you say this for me? People die when they are killed. <laughs> <laughs>